At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, we will begin at verse 12 and go through verse 23. Maybe put your finger in there and also turn to Revelation chapter 1. So we're going to begin with the passage in Exodus, and then going to the passage in Revelation 1, again beginning at verse 12, going to verse 20. So Exodus 33, 12 through 23 on page 140 in your pew Bible, and then Revelation 1, chapter 12 through, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, that is on page 1913. beginning with Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord for contemplation this evening. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and you go with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you there with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Turning over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. We will go until verse 20. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far, the reading of God's word for our contemplation this evening. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence again this evening, we are here to contemplate the words that you have spoken, that were written down for us according to your word and according to your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, be with your servant, help him to speak your truth, be with your children here in this place, that they may go and be equipped to do every good work that you have called them to do. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In our first passage this evening, in the Old Testament, we read of Moses in the desert of sin, somewhere near Mount Sinai, and he says, Lord, you've called me to lead your people. How do I know you're going to be with us? How do I know we're going to make it to this promised land? How in the world am I supposed to do this? You want me to stand up as the leader of a couple million people with no land, with a common language? We could get get picked off as a nomadic tribe, bit by bit by the surrounding nations. We could be crushed by the weight of our own sin as we travel in this desolate place. Lord, how do we know that you want me here? How in the world are we supposed to make it there safely? Lord, stay with us. Be with us. What Moses realized and what we hopefully will come to discover this evening is that the glory of God, his presence here in this world, is inherent in his nature. And as we discover more about who he is, it should lead us for a thirst for more until the final glorification, the end of all things. Now this is something that is going to be very difficult because as we talk about the glory of God, as hopefully we delve into this topic tonight of What is God's glory? I hope you realize that the reason I had us read from Exodus and from Revelation is it's not something that you can just read in one passage and go, this is exactly what God's glory is. God talks about his glory in beautiful, finite detail here, and, you know, that's the passage that we can kind of proof text as to God's glory. But rather, like many of the themes of Scripture, it is woven throughout 
the entirety of the book. In fact, John Calvin himself says that the beauty of God's glory is that you see it in the twinkling of creation until finally one day it is realized in the full spectrum of heaven. And so tonight, I hope that we will look at the discovery of God's glory, how God reveals himself, and how we talk about and discover more of God's glory as he reveals this to us through his revelation. And then finally, I hope this gives us a desire, a thirst for more, and that we may echo the cry of Moses, Lord, show me your glory. It's interesting that tonight, there's two ways we can look at this, and I think both of them are apt. The first is a timeline. You can talk about the beginning and the end of Revelation. Genesis 1, Revelation 22. You can talk about the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and how God's glory is displayed through all of it. And this is definitely a helpful tool, and I'll be referencing this a little bit, but I think really how we can understand God's glory in its entirety is a musical term. Now, for those musicians that are out there amongst us, they know what this is almost instantly. No, not like my old director. This is not just watch the director. But instead, this is a crescendo. For those of you who are not musically gifted, it means going from soft and eventually growing and growing and growing until you go loud. In musical pieces, things like a crescendo are utilized to gain emotion or momentum. They're used to build upon things one after another. In speaking arts, when we talk about the difference in volume control, sometimes a whisper needs to be built up longer and longer until you're finally at your point, and then finally people will see what you're talking about. Back when I was first a seminarian, I was told that I spent way too much time at this end of the spectrum and not enough time at this end of the spectrum. Now that I'm here in a church of relatively more experienced saints, I get told I'm more at this end of the spectrum than this end of the spectrum and people can't hear me enough. Someday, hopefully before God comes again, I'll figure out the balance. Probably not tonight. But that being said, In the crescendo, as we look at how this is building, there is a beginning point. In our timeline, there is a beginning point. And when it comes to the glory of God, you can easily say, well, there can't be a beginning point because you're talking about God. You're talking about the infinite. You're talking about Him who transcends time. How in the world can you talk about a beginning 
of God's glory. And in a certain aspect, that is correct. You can't speak about God's glory at a beginning because there is no beginning to God. Otherwise, he would have a beginning, he would have a creation, and therefore he couldn't be God. However, one thing we can consider is our beginning. We don't know exactly the date other than it was evening and it was morning the first day. I can't tell you exactly what the perfect timeline is as to when creation began, when Adam and Eve set foot upon this earth and they knew what God's glory was. In fact, they knew what God's glory was so much so because they walked with Him in the cool of the garden and spoke to Him as if a friend speaks to another. There was an understanding of what God's glory was at creation because it's the beginning of our relationship to Him. This discovery here begins the entirety of the story. It begins the entirety of the relationship that we have with God. And it is the first glimpse that we have of the glory of God when it comes to how He deals with us. He creates us. He sustains us. He did not plop Adam in the middle of a desolate place as a one-month-old child and said, okay now, fend for yourself. But instead, we know that Adam had the faculties to tend a garden. That God placed him there under the, cultural mandal, under the cultural mandate to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. We also know in creation that the glory of God is so amazing, that the power of God is so amazing, that it merely takes a word for the entirety of the universe to be created. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing that has been made has been made without Him. Well, we can talk about other beginnings as well. Earlier we talked about Abraham. God comes to him in Ur of the Chaldees and says... I will be your God. I will call you out of this place. You will come to a land that I will show you. And Abraham leaves Haran and his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. And we read story after story of how God uses Abraham in different places and in different ways. And yet, the instances that are always so striking to us, the stories that we are taught even from the earliest of ages and that are still in the back of our minds, 
God speaks to Abram and says, I will make your descendants as numerous as sand on a seashore, as multiplied as stars in the heavens. You cannot count their number, and so no one will be able to count the number of your descendants. And yet that was merely a drop in the bucket of the awesome glory of who God is. There's another beginning, though. It's beginning for Moses. When he becomes a shepherd in the land of Midian after killing an Egyptian and then fleeing for his life and being sent out into the wilderness, he finds a Midianite priest, marries his daughter, Zipporah. And as he's out tending sheep near Horeb, the mountain of God, he finds a bush that is burning, but it's not burnt up. It's this supernatural encounter that begins Moses on his journey toward where we find ourselves tonight in chapter 33. The beginning of Moses' journey is a burning bush. And all of a sudden he hears in the midst of the bush, in the midst of the crackling, Moses, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. The presence of God himself purifies the area around. The discovery of God is the first instance in where we find the glory of God, even in its whispers. And as the story continues, as Genesis goes into Exodus, and as Exodus continues, and then eventually goes into Numbers, we see how God multiplies his people. But before I skip through our passage this evening... The revelation of God continues. Moses evidences an intimate fellowship with God through his spiritual concerns here in chapter 33. The verses that we are reading tonight can be divided into three primary sections. Moses first wants to know the Lord's intentions for his people in verse 12 where he says, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. God knew Moses by name. That is, the shepherd knows his sheep. Moses belonged to God. So Moses wanted to continue to learn God's ways and enjoy God's grace. Moses interceded on behalf of the nation, reminding God that they were his people in verse 13. In response, God tells them, I will go with you. 
Not that I will leave you, but that I will not forsake you. And I will give you rest. Moses' second request was for confirmation that the Lord would indeed go with his people. And in fact, absence of God's presence with them in their journey to the promised land would pose serious problems for both their reputation and God's reputation. In fact, this is something that Moses requires or recalls time and time again. Lord, remember, we are your people, we bear your name. And remember that if something happens to us, it is your name also that will suffer. And again, we see God here agreeing to Moses' request, assuring that he will go with them and that he is pleased with Moses. And then third, it's where we get the title for tonight's sermon, and it's something that maybe we need to contemplate even more. Moses asks, show me your glory. Moses wants to have a deeper understanding of who God is. You've called me from this place. You know me by name. I am your servant and I will go where you call me. But Lord, show me your glory. I need to know who you are. I want to know who you are. I've seen you in a burning bush. You've called me to this place. I've seen your miracles. I've seen what you've done to the Egyptians through the plagues. You've called us out from Egypt. You've brought us through the desert. You've given us manna and quail. I know that you're here. But Lord, the hardest part of the journey is coming up. Lord, I need you to show me your glory. This is before, before God's glory that is demonstrated. We know the story. This is growing up. But this is before what we see later on in the years of wandering. Now, if you remember your Bible school stories, you remember your Sunday school stories, there was something that went with the people of God as they went through the desert. But we don't hear about that until after this. In the daytime, they had a pillar of cloud, and at night, they had a pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud is the demonstration of God's presence. The glory of God that goes before them, leading them to where they are going. Now, they had already seen this once before. They saw this in the pillar of cloud that protected them from the Egyptians. They knew that the fire was there. Had the glory not appeared on Sinai for all to see in Exodus chapter 20 when the Decalogue was given? Moses had indeed seen glory, God's glory in the past. 
but God shows it again in a way to reassure Moses that you are not alone. The glory of God was something that Moses directly associated with the approbation of God on his leadership of the Israelites, his approval. And if he could again see it, he could again be certain that his leadership would once again be blessed by the great king of heaven. Previously, the glory of God had always been provided at God's initiation and witnessed corporately, not individually. But this time, Moses takes the initiative here and asks for a personal audience with God. God responds favorably and indicates Moses' acceptance with God based on his faithfulness at all prior points of testing. You see, when Moses asks for God to show your glory, it's not just an isolated incident where he says, okay, God, show me your glory, and I'm done. I'm okay. This is not a Gideon moment. Remember, Gideon wants that fleece to be dry and then wants it to be wet. And Okay, fine. I, I, I got it. Okay, I'll lead your people. All right. When Moses asks, Lord, show me your glory. He says, Lord, I need to know you more. I want to see your face. I want to hear who you are because I need to know who you are. I cannot stand as a leader of people unless I know that you are with me. Moses realizes that a burning bush encounter is not all that God is going to reveal because it's not an intimate understanding of who God is. Instead, when he says, show me your glory, God says, no man may see my face and live. However, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. You notice in your NIVs there, it is in all capitals. The Lord, that is the tetragrammaton in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. There is still a limit on how much we can understand and know God while we are on this earthly frame. Show me your glory, Lord. We see that this continues that the people of Israel are protected time and time again, that the glory of God is utilized. Lord, your name is at risk here. You must protect your people in battle. You must provide for us as we go against established places like Jericho and Ai. We must know what's going on around here because, Lord, it is your glory 
We read in the books of Samuel about how the manifestation of God's glory, the Ark of the Covenant, is so protected that not only can only the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, but then when the ark is taken out by Hophni and Phinehas to battle, and it is brought onto the battlefield and lost as Hophni and Phinehas are killed, and it is brought into the foreign temple of Dagon, that the glory of God is not something to be trifled with. Dagon is found face down in front of the ark of the Lord. No thing made by mortal man can ever attain the glory of God. Not only that, but when they stand him back up, the next night they found Dagon fallen again in prostrate toward the ark of the Lord, but this time his hands and his head were broken off. And yet, even then, there is a greater understanding of God's glory beyond that. In Isaiah chapter 6, right before Isaiah is commissioned, you probably know I had to bring this passage up because this was R.C. Sproul's famous passage on the glory of God. But Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we read there by the hand of Isaiah. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. From understanding creation to coming to Isaiah 6, we are given a clearer picture of God's glory. He who walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. He who demonstrates his love by promising to Abraham that your descendants will be more numerous. That I have the power to do these things. I will rain down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. I will also appear in a burning bush. I will proclaim my name that I am will go before you. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that is demonstrated as the presence of God with his people throughout the Exodus trip. Finally, after they are established, the temple is built and we hear in the words of the prophet Isaiah that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. It cannot be contained. And yet, when the train of his robe merely touches the temple, 
the house is filled with smoke. The glory of God is not something where it takes the entirety of the presence of God to fill a place with His glory. Isaiah gives us a little bit more of a peek. No, if you knew what the entirety of God's glory was, you couldn't stand because even just the hem of his robe, the trim, the train of his garment, it fills the whole place, the whole temple, the magnificence that is the place of worship, the house of worship, hundreds of cupids. That is what God's glory is. And what is the response of Isaiah in all of this? It's God's glory. I can take this. It's not a problem. Yeah, Moses couldn't see him face to face, but you know I'm better than that. I'm a prophet after all, right? Verse 5 Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Notice how he doesn't say, I have an impure heart, or I live in a life of sin, or I constantly don't obey, or I have no, absolutely nothing to do with God, even though I think I do. No, what does he say? I am a man of unclean lips. I don't speak the way I should. I don't formulate things the way God wants me to. I don't speak in a manner that is in accordance with God's will. And I dwell in the midst of a people who do that. Isn't it amazing that the glory of God, when finally seen... And finally understood that even those who like to joke, maybe offhandedly, even they can't even stand in the presence of God. In fact, the word woe there, when he says, woe is me, it is the, it is the deepest expression of anguish that we see in the Hebrew. Woe. I am undone. There is no way I can stand before the glory that is presented here. And yet, there is a big timeline shift, a huge understanding of the crescendo a swell that happens to fill the entirety of the world when one who is the manifestation of God's glory comes and is born in Bethlehem. In the old, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. And there is no greater revelation than in Christ himself. John 1 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. This is the greater glory that is revealed to us. It is the glory of God in man. Where we see the life of Christ and its twists and turns and the stories that we hear about loaves and fish of people that are brought up and torn down. And even at a young age, when he's 12 years old in the temple and says, where else would I be but at my father's house? He is the very glory of God himself manifest among us. Paul continues to explain this to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, reflection of God's glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, which could not save, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You see here, ultimately, the end of the story The only thing that we can point to now is the glory of Christ. Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians 15, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are like him in his glory. And there is a further revelation. There's a further understanding. We see this in the Mount of Transfiguration. We see this later on in the demonstration of miracles. It continues to finally, when we see him on a cross, where he dies and the earth shakes. And graves are split open. People who are dead come back to life. And then there's a little more. When the glory of the angels appear at the tomb, and the guards shake and become like dead men. When the glory hides who he is, and Mary comes and says, My Lord, if you know where they have put him, please tell me. Because she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. And then a day that is even greater. It's a day that has kind of fallen to the wayside in our modern world. But Ascension Day. 
where Jesus gives his parting words. Go into all the world, proclaiming my name and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that the words of the cherubim and the seraphim, may God's glory go in all the earth, be fulfilled. And they stood there and watched until they could see him no longer. And he said, why do you stand gawking, gawking at what you have just seen? As we read through scripture and we see these beats and these points bit by bit and piece by piece as we see how God reveals his glory from the very beginnings, the twinklings of little flickers here and there into the demonstration of just how magnificent this glory is, how dangerous this is when it comes to our feeble frames. And yet when he shows a pure manifestation of himself in Christ, where should this take us? There is only one place it can take us. It takes us to the throne of God himself. This evening we read from Revelation chapter 1 where John, on this island of Patmos, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, where he's supposed to be exiled, he receives this vision, a revelation. And in this revelation, we see Christ in his glorified state. Not merely the state pre-ascension, but now we see Christ post-ascension. It is not the man that walks along the seaside and says, throw your nets over on the other side of the boat. And the fish swell so much that they can't bring it in. This is one who is not bound by physicality. This is a picture of the ruler of the earth. This is a picture of the king of kings and lord of lords. This is a picture that is so wonderful and so amazing that James stumbles over himself as he's writing this and he says, I see someone like a son of man. Because that's as close as he can come up to it with English, with with some sort of human language. And yet the Holy Spirit uses the words of man to transmit the beauty of the glory of God in his fullness. John uses words here that we can comprehend And yet the glory of God is so magnificent that even these words 
fall short of how amazing it's going to be when we finally see him face to face in the last of days. You see, the description of the risen Lord here is the ancient of days. The robe here of this kind, the one that is like a son of man, is typically worn in that day by men of high rank. His head and his hair were white like wool, which is another reminiscence of the ancient of days from Daniel, where God is described. The attributes of God are all displayed here. Eyes like blazing fire which penetrate to the depths of the heart, suitable to one who judges the world. Voice like the sound of rushing waters, echoing Ezekiel chapter 43, and describes the awesome voice of God. A sharp double-edged sword issued again from the mouth alludes that God is judge of humankind, the power of whose word is irresistible. It is such a Lord who held in his right hand seven stars, manifestation of the entirety of the church. He has power not only to judge evil, but to sustain those who are his. And of course, John's reaction to all of this It's the same as Isaiah's. It's the same as Ezekiel's. It's the same as Daniel's. Uh, What do you say in the presence of such magnificence? What can you do in the presence of such glory? And that's where we come to tonight. When we come into a place of worship, in times of prayer, in songs, in thoughts, in words of worship, we come into the throne room of God. We come into the place where John says his feet are like bronze going in a furnace. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. His eyes are burning like coals from a fire, as one translation puts it. That's where we come to tonight. You see the first and the last become incarnate and died and rose as the living one. He has power over death in the realm of the dead. And so he's opened the doors of the eternal kingdom for all of us. He holds the keys of death and of Hades. So that we are not left to despair. And the greatest thing of all in this timeline is that this is actually wrong. should be an arrow. Because to understand God's glory, 
is to sound who God is. To take that picture that we know from Revelation. And even as we read it for five minutes tonight, we know that that five minutes at the end of all things will be five minutes, and then five more minutes, and then five more minutes, and five more minutes, and five more minutes ad infinitum. That the presence of God, who we can at last see face to face, will never go away. That the glory of God is not something that fades, but rather that is so boundless and so wonderful and so amazing that human words cannot comprehend it. That a human mind cannot understand it in its entirety. That it is eternal life. And that eternal life is filled every morning with the glory of God where we at last will see him face to face where there will be no tears no pain no suffering where all things will be as it shall be where swords are beaten into plowshares where each man is given a fig tree and a vine. That the Garden of Eden becomes a garden city with streets made of pure gold that is so refined and so thin that it's clear as glass. That the multitude that are there see of crystal that is shown. And yet this all is secondary to the glory of God. Ultimately, our desire at the end of all of this, how do we understand this in our own life? be honest, it leads us back to one thing and one thing only. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see it every day. I want to know that what you're doing in my life, that it's your presence here with me. Lord, show me your glory because I'm a feeble man. I can't know it in its entirety. I don't know it in every little aspect, and there's no way that my mind is going to be able to comprehend everything. But if I can see your glory in every little thing, in the wind that goes to the trees, in the rain that sustains the crops, if I can see your glory in the sunrise in the morning, in the twinkling stars at night, if I can see your glory in the image that is displayed in my fellow man, whether he be red or yellow, black or white, if I can see your glory 
proclaimed by your church day in and day out. Lord, show me your glory. And ultimately, Lord, show me your glory. I want to know Christ even better. I want to know Christ all the more. Lord, glorify him. For his glory is a reflection upon us as well. And so, Lord, at the end of all things, show me your glory. May each day we write, just like Brahms did all those years ago, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. May that be every day. May we, in our lives, use the words that are in Revelation 5. In verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. May we see God's glory forever and ever, beginning with each new day and finishing when we finally get to see him face to face in the beautiful crescendo of creation. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as we come before your throne this evening, Lord, answer the cry of our hearts. Lord, show me your glory. May you be with your people in this place. May you guide them and protect them. May you show us your glory each new day until finally we get to see at the end of all days when it is one day where we can see you face to face. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.